All right, Harvest Decatur. Why don't you take your Bibles with me and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. Today we're beginning a brand new series entitled The Road to Resurrection in this great gospel. Some of you know, for the last few years, we've been working through the Gospel of John with a series initially that started in 2016 entitled, Who is Jesus? This last year, uh, at last year at this time, we followed that up with a series entitled, Jesus Following. And now we begin a new series entitled, The Road to Resurrection. And this series that's going to complete our time in the Gospel of John, complete the book, it's going to lead us right up to that Passion Week, to Good Friday and Easter. And so this is important for us as we consider the most important events in human history. I'm not exaggerating by that. The most important, the most significant events in the history of the world include Jesus's death and his subsequent resurrection. And so we're going to see that unfold in the Gospel of John over the next few weeks. Now this morning, today, I want to start with this. People say, and you've probably heard this before, the pen is mightier than the sword. How many of y'all agree with that? I agree with that statement. I believe it. You know, the Revolutionary War in America, just an example, that was, that was a mighty event in American history, even world history. But it wasn't as mighty as the Declaration of Independence, It wasn't as mighty the war itself, the use of the sword and weapons. It wasn't as mighty as the the Constitution of the United States of America. That was the most monumental thing that happened in the, the War of Independence. And you could say the same thing about the Civil War in our country. The Civil War in America was a mighty and monumental event in our history. But it wasn't as mighty as the Emancipation Proclamation. The pen is indeed mightier than the sword. Those words conveyed were more important even than the war that was fought. And you could even say the same thing about the scriptures. How many people have been influenced by the the pens that wrote this scripture? I hope you have been influenced by it. I can attest to the mightiness of these words and what they've done in my life. And by the way, let me just say this too, since we're talking about the pen being mightier than the sword. The mightiness of the pen is not always used in positive ways. You know that much blood has been spilt in our world because of the foolish pen of Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, who wrote the Communist Manifesto. Much blood has been spilt because of the evil pen of Adolf Hitler and his autobiography, Mein Kampf. Much evil has been accomplished by the mighty pen of Nietzsche and Freud and Lenin and Sanger and Darwin. So the pen is mightier than the sword. But here's my thesis for today, okay? Here's what I want to argue, and if you don't get this before you leave today, I haven't done my job very well, okay? And you can feel free to amen this if you want. Jesus Christ, our Savior, is mightier than the pen and mightier than the sword. He is. He is. Let me say it this way. The only thing in this world that's more powerful than the written word of God, the only thing in this world that's more powerful than the written word of God is the living word of God. Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. The apostle John wrote all about this in John 1. Maybe you remember this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. 
Jesus, our Savior, is mightier than the pen and he's mightier than the sword. And then today we're going to see in this passage, John 18, verses 1 through 11, we're going to see Peter. Oh, Peter, bless his heart. We're going to see Peter foolishly try to brandish his sword and bring the kingdom of God and try to accomplish God's will by the might of the sword. And Jesus is going to say, no, Peter, that's not God's plan. There's something better than the sword. But before we get to that, let's start here. Why is the Savior, Jesus Christ, mightier than the sword? The Savior is mightier than the sword. The Savior is mightier than the sword. That's my title for the message today. Here's the question. Why is the Savior, Jesus Christ, mightier than the sword? I'll give you three answers to that. Here's the first one. Because Jesus is the great I am. Because Jesus is the great I am. Look with me, if you would, at John 18, verse 1. John says this. He says, when Jesus had spoken these words... He went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now, these words in verse 1, let me just set the context here. They refer, these words in verse 1, that refers to the prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17. If you remember from last year, I called this the real Lord's Prayer. And, you know, I say that because what we commonly refer to as the Lord's Prayer, that which is found in Matthew 6, 9 through 13, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that prayer is great, but, you know, Jesus gave that prayer to his disciples to pray. It's better referred to as the disciples' prayer, not the Lord's prayer. And I say that too because, you know, Jesus, in that statement as he gives it to his disciples, part of that prayer is forgive us our trespasses. Well, Jesus could never pray that prayer because Jesus didn't have any trespasses to forgive, right? So that was, I mean, that was the disciples' prayer. But John 17, and we looked at this. We had th- I had three message on this, messages on this last year. John 17 is the real Lord's Prayer. This is a prayer that only Jesus could pray verbatim. And it's a beautiful prayer because in it, Jesus prays for himself, verses 1 through 5. Jesus prays for his disciples, and then he prays for all of us, his future disciples, in verses 20 through 26. And all of that takes place in the context of the upper room. All of that takes place at Passover on Thursday, the night before Good Friday, the night before Jesus's crucifixion. And so after, that's the context, okay? So after Jesus prays that great prayer in John 17, he and his disciples go into a garden, according to verse one here. And we know from the other gospels that this is the garden of Gethsemane. And we also know from the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that Jesus went there, the Garden of Gethsemane, to pray some more. Jesus Jesus liked to pray. Have you ever noticed that in the Bible? That was a big deal to him. And while Jesus was there in this garden, while he was praying, this happened. Look at verse 2. Now Judas who betrayed Jesus, also knew this place. He knew the garden, for often Jesus met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, according to John 13, just a few hours before this, when they were taking the Passover meal together, 
Jesus told Judas, this betrayer, what you're going to do, do quickly. And sure enough, that's what Judas does. He quickly goes and procures these soldiers, these officers with Pharisees and torches and weapons. And, and you know, this is more than just a mob, by the way. So you can, might imagine just like a mob of crazy people like coming after Jesus. This is more than a mob. This is a militia. This is actually a battalion of soldiers that Judas brings with him. The Greek word here used for band of soldiers indicates something in the neighborhood of 600 to 1,000 soldiers for a carpenter. For, you know, I mean, I know that Peter and the fishermen were probably big, tough, burly guys, but come on now. They really need this much firepower to take out Jesus and his band. I will note that they did it in the cover of darkness because they didn't want to start a riot in the city. So they went to this secret place. Judas led them. He led them to a place where he knew Jesus would be. And Judas brings an army. He brings an army. They weren't taking any chances with Jesus. Look at verse four. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Now, don't skip over this verse too quickly. Look at verse four again. Jesus, knowing, y'all see that word? Knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said, whom do you seek? Jesus knew this. He knew this was happening. That's why he said to Judas just a few hours before this, what you're going to do, go do quickly. That's why he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Let me, let me just state it clear. He's not hiding from them. He's not afraid. He goes to this place that he had taken Judas several times before. He knows that they're coming for him. By the way, you know, this, this group of 600 soldiers, weapons and lanterns, you, you could have seen this group coming a mile away and he heard them coming too you know this wasn't a SWAT team this wasn't like you know the Navy SEALs showing up clandestinely trying to arrest Jesus this was a huge army of people coming to arrest Jesus and he knew they were coming he saw that they were coming and Jesus comes forward unafraid and says whom do you seek now what's John trying to tell you here Not only did Jesus know that they were coming, but Jesus came forward to meet them and greet them and say, whom do you seek? What's what's John trying to convey to us? Jesus is in total control of this situation. He knows what's going to happen. He's not afraid of what's going to happen. He is not the victim of this army or of his circumstances. This is what the father has for him. This is what the father wants him to do. Now, let me stop here for a moment. Because if you're familiar with the other Gospels, there's some other details here that you need to be aware of. You might ask, didn't Jesus have his moment of crisis in prayer? Wasn't it at the Garden of Gethsemane uh, Gethsemane where Jesus said, take this cup from me? Yeah, Jesus did have his crisis, so to speak. He did pray that out in his soul. And if you read that account carefully in Matthew 26, you can see that the overriding desire of Jesus's heart. Even though he said, take this cup from me, he said, what? Not my will, but yours be done, Lord. Not my will, but yours be done, Father. And you can see him bow to the Father's will. You can see how that that conviction grows in Jesus as you, you follow that narrative in Matthew 26 in the Garden of Gethsemane. Eventually, Jesus says, Father, 
If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. I will drink it. I will do what you called me to do. His conviction and his confidence is set in prayer after he's done praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. By the way, just a word of application, that's what prayer does. That's what prayer does. It gives us confidence in what God wants us to do, even if it goes against our will. And that goes against so much of what our prayer is like in the Christian world today. Gimme, 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 God. That's what we pray. Gimme, 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 gimme. That's not what Jesus prayed. Jesus even said his petition before the Lord, take this cup from me, but not my will be done, but yours be done. And he prayed that out before the Lord. He has conviction. He's unafraid. He rises up from that time of prayer, ready to do the painful thing that the father wants him to do. So background. Now let's get back to the story in John 18. That's why Jesus was so confident when Judas and the soldiers arrived. He's prayed his soul confident in the garden and Jesus is not running away. He's not hiding from anyone. And this is when the story gets really interesting. By the way, watch what happens next. Because Jesus asked them, whom do you seek? And they answer, look at verse five. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Can't you just see them trying to be intimidating and tough? Jesus of Nazareth. That's who we seek. Okay. Jesus says to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Y'all see that in your Bibles? 600 soldiers, along with Judas and along with the Pharisees, just fall down. Like, Like baby penguins trying to walk. They just splat, fall on their faces. This is great. Actually, it says... Let me qualify that. Get that penguin image out of your head. <laughs> Actually, it says they, they fell back words. You know, kind of like a, a, I think of this as like a group of soldiers who, you know, a grenade just went off in their midst and they're feeling the effects of that concussion or a, a shell just dropped in their midst and they're blown back by it and they fall on the ground. They are overwhelmed by the force of the blast of Jesus' words and they fall backwards onto the ground. What, what caused this? What in the world would cause a, con- a concussion like that, that they would fall backwards and hit the ground? Well, there's no military explanation for this. Jesus simply says to them, I am he. That's all he says. By the way, some of you know this already in Greek. There's no word he in this verse. It's ego me. It's I am. According to John in the original Greek, Jesus doesn't say, I am he. Jesus says, come on, you know what he says. I am. That's the force. That's the blast that blows them backwards. And, you know, we've looked at the gospel of John before. You guys know that sounds like John, what Jesus said in John 8 when he told a group of Pharisees before Abraham was, I am. And they knew what he meant by that because they picked up stones to throw him. Throw at him. All of that goes back to Yahweh revealing himself in the burning bush in Exodus 3.14 when Moses is like, well, okay, I'll go back to the Israelites in Egypt, but who shall I say sent me? And God says, I am. Tell him I am sent you. I am who I am. In other words, I am Yahweh. Let me just connect the dots for you, okay? Everybody, everybody following with me? 
The I am from the Old Testament is Jesus in the New Testament. Yahweh from the Old Testament is Yahweh Jesus here in the New Testament. And Jesus blasting these people to the ground is done by simply uttering the I am statement that God did in the Old Testament. That's power in his words. And there's just this little reminder here as they're coming to arrest Jesus and they seem like they're in charge and they seem like they're the ones with all the power. Jesus lets them know, you're not taking me unless I give myself to you. I'm in control of this situation. And the only reason you're allowed to take me is because I give my life willingly to you because that's what the Father wants me to do. I just read this morning a quote from Alexander McLaren, an old Scottish preacher. It's not on the screen because I read it this morning. But I want to read it for you because here's what he says about this passage. He says, you know what I think happened in that moment? I'm inclined to think that here, there was, was just for a moment a rending of the veil. And just as Moses could not look upon the face but only survived the merest glimpse of the back part of God's glory, and as Isaiah, who through the smoke had the merest glance of his majesty, said, Woe is me, for I am undone. So here, one stray beam of manifest deity that shot through the crevice, as it, as it were, for an instant, was enough to devastate and prostrate with abject awe, even these armed men. Jesus blew them away for just a moment with a glimpse of his glory. Tim Keller asked the question, why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus at this moment of greatest weakness flex some of his deity muscles? And he says, because he's trying to show us that his very weakness is paradoxically the most incredible feat of strength in history. It's incredibly difficult when you are really, really strong to be gentle. It takes a tremendous amount of strength to be weak, Keller says. Jesus Christ is saying, I'm the most powerful, weak person. I'm the weakest, powerful person in history. I'm exerting my strength and power as I become utterly and completely vulnerable. That's Jesus Christ for us right here. Showing his strength and as part of his strength, surrendering to the Father's will for him. By the way, falling to the ground, that's pretty typical in the Old Testament when Yahweh shows up. Yahweh shows up and people hit the deck. You will too when you see Jesus face to face someday. You will bow your knee before his glory. And there's everything that's going on here points to what some theologians refer to as the divinum mysterium, the divine mystery. And this is the divine mystery. Here's what causes these people to fall to the ground. It's Jesus revealing himself as Yahweh. It's Jesus invoking his power through the simplicity of those words. I am. Let me just state the obvious here. I've, said it already, but I think I need to say it again. Nobody, nobody takes Jesus by force. He is not a victim. He willingly gives himself up. John 10, 18 says it clearly. You can read this on the screen. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from the Father. And why does Jesus lay it down? Why did he do that? Why would he be willing to be 
humiliated like this by creatures he created. Well, because he's a savior. And that's what saviors do. They save. Jesus, the great I am, lays down his life for us to save us from our sins. Go ahead and write this down as number two as well. Why is the Savior Jesus Christ mightier than the sword? First of all, because Jesus is the great I am. Here's a second reason. Because Jesus protects all who belong to him. Look at verse 7 with me. So he asked them again. I mean, they're all on the ground reeling. Whom do you seek? I can kind of just see this group of people like dusting themselves off and probably a little less confidently this time said, Jesus of Nazareth, please don't hurt us. And this time Jesus answers, verse eight, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go, referring to his disciples who were there with him in the garden. And John tells us that this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. There's no dramatic result from the second I am he statement, even though it's the same words as before. And that's because Jesus is giving himself up. That's what the father wants. That's what he has determined to do after his prayer in the garden of Gethsemane. But what's interesting now as this passage continues is what, how Jesus answers the second time. If you seek me, let these men go. Let these disciples go. Why does Jesus want the disciples to be let go? What's he getting at here? Well, let me illustrate it this way. Some of you might remember the, the Michael Mann movie from the 90s, The Last of the Mohicans. Maybe some of y'all even read that book. Y'all remember that movie? Am I dating myself here? Well, there's an important scene in that movie where a character named Duncan does something similar to what Jesus does here. If you remember the movie, there's this love triangle between Duncan and Hawkeye, who was raised by Mohican Indians that's played by Daniel Day-Lewis in that picture there. And then the daughter of a British general named Cora. And, you know, this story is set in the French and Indian War. And Duncan is this British officer who loves Cora, but Cora only loves Hawkeye, uh, the white Indian, so to speak. And she was rejected. She rejected Duncan. Well, there's this scene at the end of the movie where they've all been taken prisoner. The three of them have been taken prisoner by the Huron Indians. And the chief of the Indian tribe decides that Cora must die for the sins of her father. And so they're about to execute her. But in the midst of the negotiations, Duncan, this jilted lover, offers himself in place of Cora so that she can go free. And so she, amazingly, the Indian chief agrees to this. And so they, they grab Duncan and they throw him into the fire and they burn him and they let Hawkeye and Cora go. He essentially dies so that they can be set free. This woman that has rejected him, he willingly dies for her so that she can be free and go on to live with Hawkeye. And it, you know, it's a great illustration for me. And I would even use this term for it. It's a kind of substitutionary atonement that he willingly takes upon himself. And towards the end of the movie, you see him outstretched, burning, dying for the 
person that he died for. And something like that is happening here with Jesus. Jesus knows that his disciples, Peter, James, John, Thomas, Andrew, etc., all of these men could die right now. They could be strung up right there for their role as co-conspirators with Jesus. These men could be taken into custody. These men could be crucified too, just like Jesus. And so Jesus, this is him bargaining with Judas and with the soldiers. Take me, not them. Let me die, not them. You are searching for Jesus of Nazareth? He says twice, that's me. Let these others go. And, and what I marvel at here is that, you know, the apostle John, he was there. He wrote this book and he was there when this happened. And he saw how Jesus protected him and he protected the other disciples. And he heard Jesus's prayer from John 17. When Jesus prayed this, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, i.e. Judas. Now John is linking that prayer in John 17 with what happens here at Jesus' arrest in John 18, and that's why he writes in verse 9, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. And I think in that statement, there's a little snapshot. I think that statement is a little microcosm of what Jesus does for all of us. He guards us. He protects us. He absorbs the blows himself in order for us to go free and to have our sins forgiven. He suffers for sin so that we don't have to. That's what's illustrated here. We were talking about this last week as elders because we've been working through 1 Peter 5 again and we were kind of looking at this description of elders and what the elders do. And you know, one of the words that's used for eldering is shepherding. We're to shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight. And, and yet, I mean, that statement is qualified even in 1 Peter 5 because we're, we're shepherds, but we're not the chief shepherd, Right? We're shepherds as elders, but we're under shepherds. We're under the chief shepherd. We're under the great shepherd. We're under the one who gives his life and lays it down for the sheep. I'll just tell you, church, yeah, I mean, I'm your pastor, I'm your shepherd, but I can't die for your sins. I can't do that because I'm not perfect. Y'all know that. I don't have to convince you of that. So we are under shepherds of the great the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. And because he died for your sins, you don't have to suffer for them. You might say, do you have a verse for that, Pastor Tony? I mean, can you substantiate that a little bit more? Yeah, I can. John chapter 10, verse 11. You can read this on the screen. And verse 28, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I give my sheep eternal life. And they will never perish and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. That is what we call eternal security, folks. The real question for you isn't, can anyone remove the sheep out of Jesus's hand? We know that can't happen. The real question for you this morning is this. Are you a sheep? Do you belong to the great shepherd? Are you one of his sheep? 
I don't know about y'all, but I just want to be a sheep. Bah. And I belong to the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. Do you belong to him? Did he die for you? Have you put your faith in him and trusted him as your savior? So back to my main question, why is the Savior, Jesus Christ, mightier than the sword? First of all, because Jesus is the great I am. Secondly, because Jesus protects all who belong to him. And then thirdly, this is great. This this may be the longest point I've ever had in 10 years of preaching. I just couldn't synthesize this any further. Actually, Paul Roberts helped me to get it down a little bit more but I st- it's still long and it's got to be long because it's great write this down as number three why is the sh- savior mightier than the sword because Jesus completes the greatest mission in the history of the world without the use of violence I've been reading this book Lately, by William C. Davis called Three Roads to the Alamo. This is required reading for all kids who grew up in Texas. So I'm reading it right now. And I'm, you know, it's a book about Davy Crockett and Jim Bowie and William Travis and their lives before the Alamo. And the most fascinating character in that book is not Davy Crockett, who I thought it would be. It's actually Jim Bowie, this guy who came to wear what's called the Bowie knife. He got this from his brother. and um, It's called a knife, but it, it looks more like a sword, doesn't it? I mean, it's like a machete, that thing. This huge knife, and the reason that Jim Bowie always wore this thing is because uh, he got in a fight early in his life, and uh, he didn't have a gun, and so he was fighting with this guy for his life, and he didn't have easy access to his knife. So after that, he got this, this thing, this massive knife from his brother, and he created a sheath for it, and he always had it around his chest in case he needed to pull it out in a moment's notice. In a fight or whatever, you know, Texans, you know how they are. <laughs> and he actually used it on occasion to protect himself. And, you know, even all the way to the Alamo. Let me just state the obvious for you this morning. Jesus Christ is not Jim Bowie, Okay. Jesus Christ didn't kill anybody when he came to earth. He didn't come to the earth to wield a sword or to fashion a sword or to brandish a sword. Actually, I remember in that book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, there's a fascinating passage where Nabil Qureshi, he's considering whether or not to convert to Christianity. And one of the things that he admired about Jesus was that when he came to the earth, he never killed anybody. He never picked up a sword. He never incited violence or condoned violence. And that can't be said of Muhammad. And that convicted him. Here's a man who put the sword on himself instead of wielding it to build a kingdom on earth. Jesus voluntarily laid his life down. He gave himself up to be arrested. And to punctuate that, look at what happens in verse 10. Read this with me. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck 
the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. Peter's like, we're taking the kingdom, Jesus. Here we go. Like Zorro out there. He's going to take it by force. You know, Peter, it's Peter. Ah, Peter. Bless his heart. You know, Peter, if you remember, Peter had a chance earlier to take up a spiritual weapon of warfare. When Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he told him to pray too. You know what Peter was doing instead? He was sleeping. By the way, I love daylight savings time. You know why I, know, you know why I love it? Because when the rest of the world is sleeping, you guys are here praying and worshiping the Lord. Good job out of you. Way to be here this morning. Peter was sleeping when he had a chance to wield real spiritual power, but instead he resorts to something worthless for spiritual warfare, a dagger. You know, Peter decides to go Jim Bowie his way out of this mess, and he pulls out his sword, he starts slicing and dicing, and the fact, okay, the fact that he cuts off this guy's ear tells me two things about Peter. First of all, it tells me that Peter was trying to cut off his head. And secondly, it tells me that Peter is a really lousy swordsman. <laughs> and in fact, that's substantiated in the Greek because this word used for sword here is a word makaro, and it connotes more of a dagger than a sword. So this weapon wasn't used to slice, it was used to stab. So Peter wasn't trying to slice him, in the, he was trying to, to stab him in the face. And thankfully, he missed him and cut off his ear. And you know from the other Gospels that Jesus healed it. And Jesus told Peter, I could, I could call 12 squadrons of angels down if I wanted to to take care of this mess. Peter, what are you doing? By the way, this verse tells us another thing. The fact that this guy is recorded here, a guy named Malchus, shows us that John knew this guy personally. Malchus was a, an eyewitness to this event. So this is not something fabricated by John People in that day could have easily gone to Malchus and said, did that really happen? He could have said, yeah, it did, or no, it didn't. And he was an eyewitness to it. Some people have even speculated that this guy, Malchus, eventually became part of the church. That's more than we can say here. All I know for sure is that Peter wanted to take the kingdom of heaven by force. Maybe even go out in a blaze of glory, stabbing and killing people in Jesus' name. Why not do that? I'd be tempted to do that in that moment. Muhammad does that 600 years later for his religions. religion. Why not do that? Why not take a sword now and kill people in Jesus' name? Here's why not. Look at verse 11. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Here's why not. The Savior of the world doesn't save through violence. He doesn't save souls by the sword. That's man's way of handling situation. The Savior of the world saves through sacrifice. The Savior of the world saves through grace. Do you know that, Christian? So Peter, 
Do, do you get it, Peter? Do you understand? You know, we're more like Peter than we'd like to admit. God, your program's not working. I don't like it. Let me, let me take control here. <laughs> you ever do that with God? That doesn't work. Now, here's the question we got to answer. And maybe that statement by Jesus is a little mysterious for you. What is the cup that the Father gives Jesus to drink? What is Jesus talking about? Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The cup is an Old Testament metaphor for God's wrath. Here's an example of that. You can read this in the screen, on the screen, Jeremiah 25, 15. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Other Old Testament verses communicate similar ideas. And on Jesus' lips, the cup is similarly being used as God's wrath. The cup embodies the suffering that Jesus will endure on the cross in the coming hours when he's crucified. And it indicates the wrath of God that he will absorb into himself so that we don't have to. He is our substitutionary atonement. He takes God's wrath into himself so that we don't have to. And we remember this at communion time, whenever we take communion by drinking from the cup, the cup that symbolizes Christ's sacrifice and his blood that was shed for our sin. By the way, do you know that the wrath of God abides on those who do not know Christ? And you can't really understand the cross unless you know that. Dr. Roger Nickel, I read this this morning too, he, he used to tell this story. You know, if you were by a campfire and you're, friend was next to you at this campfire, uh, all of a sudden said, I love you. Let me show, how, show you how much I love you. And then they jumped into the fire and died in the fire for you. What would you think about that? You would think this person's crazy. What are they smoking? That's not love for me. You're just, I mean, you're just killing yourself for no reason. But if you change the equation and you think about yourself in front of a burning house and your child is inside of that house and your friend shows up, runs inside that house, saves your child, dies in the fire because of it, you would say to yourself, that person loved me. That person loved us. He gave himself in order to save us. So Dr. Nichols says this, do you realize it? That if Jesus Christ gives his life on the cross and we're not in any trouble, there's not any wrath of God, there's not any punishment for sin, then Jesus is crazy. Why would he do that? Why would he just go kill himself for no reason? The problem is we are in trouble. The wrath of God is a real thing and we will suffer for our sins. That's why Jesus had to die. That's why Jesus accepted the cup. The cup that the father wanted Jesus to drink was the cup of his death, atoning for the sins of his people, for you and for me. And Jesus did that. Jesus said, here I am, Roman soldiers, arrest me. I'm giving my life willingly. Here I am, Judas. Take me. I'm giving myself willingly in order to do this. This is the cup that the Father wants me to drink. Jesus is even saying to his disciples and to Peter, Peter, put your sword away. I have to die for your sins. Don't you get that? Peter should have known that. 
Because Jesus told him and the other disciples repeatedly on his way to Jerusalem that he was going to be delivered up to the Pharisees to die. They should have known that the Savior is mightier than the sword. Do you know that, Christian? Do you know how powerful your Savior is? Do you know what Jesus did for you and why he did it for you? I read this too this morning. I couldn't sleep last night, so I just started reading, okay? So my sermon got a little longer. Forgive me. By my watch, we got another hour, so we're good. (laughs) Tim Keller says this. He says, you see, years and years and years ago, many years ago, God set a man down into a garden and put a tree in front of him. And he said, obey me about the tree. Don't eat the fruit of that tree. You may eat of every other fruit of the garden, but not the fruit of that tree. He said, Adam, obey me and you will live. And Adam didn't. Centuries later, God put another man down into another garden. And in this garden, he put in front of him a tree and he said, obey me about the tree, but it's a different tree this time. It's a cross. To the first Adam, God said, if you obey me, you will live. But he didn't do that. To the second Adam, Jesus Christ, God said, son, obey me and I'll crush you. Go to the cross and I'll punish you for them. And that second Adam obeyed and he did it. And the tree is this place where Jesus died and there and only there to both love and the justice of God perfectly, brilliantly coincide coincide and shine forth. What do you all think about that? I'll close with this. And then I want us to sing. When I was a kid, I really didn't like passages like this. You know, I really thought to myself, you know, why didn't Jesus just call down fire from heaven and obliterate all these people, you know, obliterate Judas, obliterate all these nincompoops who are out there trying to arrest Jesus. And I used to think as a kid, maybe y'all thought this way too. You know, Peter had the right idea. Why didn't, why didn't Jesus in that moment, you know, brandish that sword coming out of his mouth and just whack people to death right there? Like we see in the book of revelation, that would have been great. And I remember hearing my Sunday school teachers talk about Jesus being mocked at the cross. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. He saved others. Why can't he save himself? I remember watching as a kid that miniseries, Jesus of Nazareth. Y'all remember that? And I used to think, it really bothered me, that movie. I used to think to myself, do something, Jesus. Wipe them out. Make them regret the day that they ever mocked you. And I, I didn't understand as a kid why he allowed himself willingly to be killed and crucified. He laid down his weapons and surrendered himself to God. Why did he do that? You know, with the words of his mouth, he could blow them away. Well, I understand now why he did it. I know what it means to sacrificially give your life for another person. And I know that Jesus had to do that. 
in order to save me and to save you from eternal punishment and death. And it's because he loves me and it's because he loves you that he willingly drank the cup that God the Father gave him. And I love Jesus for that. I love him more than I ever could if he had wielded his sword and killed them all in that moment. The worship team's gonna sing that song that they introduced to you earlier today. I just wanna say something about that and then we'll sing. I love this song. And I want you to embrace it for this series. Phil Wickham, he writes in this song, here's what he says. This is the second verse. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross is spoken. I am forgiven. The king of kings calls me his own. Beautiful savior. I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living home. Here's what's great about that song. Jesus is our savior. He's our hope, but he's not a dead hope. He didn't stay dead. That's what this series is about. This is the road to resurrection. That great moment when Jesus rose from the dead. He's not our dead hope. He's our living hope. Let's stand and let's sing that together.